You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White. Let's get into the news roundup. President Biden's student debt relief program launches this weekend, and it's already gotten millions of applicants. That's despite finding multiple lawsuit suits, but some of those challenges got dealt a serious blow on Thursday. We get into it, plus candidates across the U.S. hit the final stretch ahead of the midterms. Did we learn anything from this week's debates? Let's turn to our panel for some answers. Steve Clemens is the editor-at-large for Semaphore, that's a global news outlet, and Nancy Cook is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Steve, Nancy, it's great to have you. Let's get into it. So two courts dealt two blows to opponents of President Biden's student loan plan on Thursday. Justice Amy Coney Barrett denied an emergency request from a Wisconsin taxpayer group to block the program. That same day, a federal judge rejected a lawsuit from six states also hoping to block it. Steve, why didn't these challenges move forward? Well, the biggest reason they didn't move forward is that those that brought the suits did not have standing uh, uh, vis-a-vis the judges that were judging in these cases thought that, you know, it's very hard to sue the U.S. government. You have to have certain standing to do so. And I think Amy Coney Barrett uh, and uh, in the other case with the federal district court decided that um, the suits couldn't start with the litigants where where it began. And precisely what were these groups arguing? Well, in in one case, uh, it was very interesting. The groups were arguing that this was essentially a taking, that that the president did not have the authority to just waive debt. But another interesting dimple in this is that they argued that the recipients, those that would benefit from the student loan relief, were largely black Americans. And thus, there was a racial grounds uh, for which the president was doing this, and they filed uh, essentially a complaint of of racist-motivated policy uh, against the White House. So is there any recourse now that these groups have been denied? Well, there is a recourse. They will appeal. uh, We know that they will appeal the decision uh, not through Amy Coney Barrett, but through the the, uh, district court uh, that that judged against them, that there will be an appeal that goes up to a higher uh, group of justices, and those justices are known to be conservative. Now, that doesn't mean that these conservative justices will automatically accept the litigant's standing uh, or the direction that they're going. Um, but what is interesting is that Amy Coney Barrett had jurisdiction over the case that came to her, and she had justice, and she just shut it down. And mm. and she had been, of course, appointed by Donald Trump um, and, and did not uh, do what some people hope she might, which is to give this uh, this court, uh, this uh, litigation, some life. Well, applica- applications to apply for student loan relief open this weekend at studentaid.gov. Less than eight weeks ago, I announced my administration's plan to forgive up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt and up to $20,000 if you received a Pell Grant for folks earning less than $125,000 a year. I'm announcing how millions, millions of people working in middle class folks can apply for get this relief. And it's simple and it's now. The site launched after President Biden first announced he would forgive up to $20,000 worth of student debt for some borrowers back in August. Nancy, what do borrowers need to know about this program? Well, um, you know, the White House really uh, passed this or or did it through executive action to appeal to young voters. Uh, And, you know, there's about 40 million people who stand to benefit from it. There are some income requirements. So people, in order to qualify, people need to make less than $125,000 a year. Um, But, you know, the application is online. People need to, it's not automatic. So people need to go online and enroll in it. Um, the application is fairly short, but it does stand to benefit um, 
I know a lot of people who, you know, carry large amounts of student debt and, and only $10,000 can be forgiven. So, um, you know, you have the income requirement and then there's a cap on how much can actually be forgiven. Hey, I talked to a few young people in my life who applied for the program. They said the application process really took them just a, a few minutes. How has the rollout on this gone so far? And what should we expect from the weeks ahead, Nancy? Well, it's interesting because the White House did this and then it, it, they didn't really sort of promote it very heavily leading up to the midterms until this week. And I think that partially that was they were wanted to make sure that the application process would go off without a hitch. You know, a lot of the Biden's top advisors worked in the White House during um, the healthcare.gov rollout after the Affordable Care Act was passed. And that was really a flop for Democrats. And so I think that there was a real sense that they wanted to make sure that this online application was easy to use and efficient. It has really um, been fairly easy and, and not problematic so far. And about 12 million people have applied for the loan forgiveness as of October um, 18th. That's what the president said this week. Um, and so it, you know, it's been fairly easy. And the president today is going to Delaware State to tout the student loan forgiveness. He hasn't talked about it a ton on the campaign trail yet, um, but we're starting to see him today talk more about it. Steve, who's taking advantage of this program? Because if you look at some of the rhetoric around who's accessing it, some folks seem to believe this is for you know people who have college degrees and are working in elite jobs. But is that what we're actually seeing? Well, I, the, the truth is we've had, you know, I, I think Nancy's right. We haven't seen a big rollout of this yet, but we've already had, we know that there have been 8 million applicants thus far. That's a big, pretty big chunk of folks. And and that was the last time I saw the number. I'm sure it has surged higher uh, now. And so I do think that it's a broad, a broad range of Americans who have gone on to school, accumulated debt, still are in that income level, are applying. There's been criticism that this is, you know, a taking, this is basically helping people that are already on a fast track to success, and that given the inequality in American society today, um, given the difference um, in treatment and opportunity for those with degrees versus those with non-degrees, we're finding a way to get those without degrees support to, uh, go, whether it's community colleges or other tracks to have free or less burdensome education, that this led, that this program doesn't do anything to help those people. But, uh, but and, I want to jump you know, in here really quickly, Steve, because it's you don't have to have completed your degree to access this program. You you do not have to have completed completed your degree. And as I think Nancy just said, if you you received a Pell Grant at any level, then you are eligible for up to twice the amount that other uh, you know going from ten thousand dollars in relief to twenty thousand dollars in relief if you received a Pell Grant, which meant you were sort of in a low income case. So, but there are those that are sitting and saying this this doesn't affect them or their lives, and they feel if it is unfair to them and only. Uh, increases the stigma uh, of not having made the college choice or gone on to do to do these things. So there is that criticism out there. But in terms of breaking down the 8 million applicants thus far, I haven't seen those breakdowns yet to see how it is distributed across income gaps or uh, American society. All I know is 8 million in a few days is a lot. So there's, it shows there's demand for this. Well, we got this email from Bill who says, it's beyond me why the Republican Party continues to do the unthinkable. Who would not want student loan forgiveness? It seems that if the Dems say it's raining, they will say, no, it's sunny. What are some of the politics around this, Nancy? And do those politics necessarily reflect what the American public says they need? 
Well, I think that the politics around the student loan forgiveness are that, you know, the president really needed to find a way to uh, excite young voters ahead of the midterms. You know, it's young voters, uh, independents, suburban women have really turned away from the Democratic Party since the 2020 election. And so inside the White House, there were a number of the president's top aides, including Chief of Staff Ron Klain, who really thought that sort of doing student loan forgiveness was very important ahead of the midterms just to boost enthusiasm among these different segment of voters, even if the president himself had some concerns about um, just the idea of student loan forgiveness. Um, You know, the politics on the Republican side is, as Steve was talking about, Republicans are really trying to paint this as a giveaway the government spending more money at a time when inflation is at a 40-year high. And, you know, their argument is that you're flooding the system with more money. The economists that I talk to feel like we've never done student loan forgiveness before. So it's unclear how people who have their loans forgiven will actually react and, and how they will view that money, how they will spend money that they're saving differently. So it's a bit of an economic experiment. Um, but Democrats definitely thought that it would help them ahead of the midterms. And, and that was part of the calculus when President Biden made that decision. Steve, anything to add there? Well, you know, it's very interesting that there's not uniformity of view in the Democrats. Jason Furman, President Obama's national economic advisor, has been very critical of this program, um, also arguing it isn't going to have the impact that increases uh, inequality in, in, in certain senses, but also in a time when people have a lot of economic anxiety over inflation. They just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. There's a lot of that act, that, that, that raising of money dedicated to reducing debt, and almost immediately after that, as the applause was was being made for the IRA, then the executive order to move on student uh, debt relief and the amount of money that it is costing, it is a hugely expensive program. And so others from a more fiscally conservative or pragmatic uh, Democrats are are frustrated that the president sort of took away the gains that he did in, you know, essentially uh, legitimacy of addressing debt and infl- inflation uh, with the IRA and then put this program out right afterward and sort of erase those gains. We've got a lot more news to cover and we'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. You're listening to the News Roundup. And let's bring one more voice into the conversation. Josh Meyer is the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Josh, it's always great to have you on. Great to be here, Jen. Thanks. In what could be a harbinger of trends to come, GOP candidate Carrie Lake refused to commit to accept the results of Arizona's gubernatorial election if she loses. Will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. Again, that was Arizona's GOP gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake speaking to CNN's Dana Bash on Sunday. Nancy, put this into context for us. Who is Carrie Lake and is it surprising to hear this from her? Well, Carrie Lake is basically... um She is a former TV news anchor. She's running for um, governor of Arizona. People have called her sort of a a different next generation Trump style candidate um, in that she has a lot of the same policy ideas and a lot of the same instincts that he has and is appealing to you know, much of the same audience, but, uh, you know, she's doing it with a slightly different demeanor. Um, You know, she is a little less sort of brash. She's still brash, but, 
you know, she's has a little bit more of a smoother style than he does on the campaign trail, but she has a lot of the same ideas. And and one of them is that she is pretty adamant. I, I, this was a startling moment on TV where she basically um, indicated that she refused to say if she, if, if she would, uh, you know, accept the results of the election if she lost and has also gone along to, you know, continue to say that Trump really won the election. And Arizona is such a key um, state and will be such a key state in 2024. And so I think that for people worried about election integrity in the next presidential race, her comments really set off a lot of alarm bells. Josh, what are we hearing from other Republicans about accepting election results? Uh, well, Jen, you know, this. I, I think what's important to note here is that uh, Lake's line on election uh, results uh, is not an aberration. Quite the contrary, it by and large reflects the GOP's new normal, in a sense, uh, which includes policies and platforms that are entirely at odds with established norms of government, uh, good governance, uh, how democracy is supposed to work. She's got a lot of company. Um, her um, far-right uh, fellow Arizonan Republican candidate, Senate hopeful Blake Masters is also starting to cast doubt on the outcome of the election. Uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin's campaign also hedged when asked whether the longtime Republican, uh, who, by the way, was the chairman of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, uh, would accept the results of the election. But there's at least, you know, six other ones, Ted Budd in North Carolina, Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, Kelly Shabaka in Alaska, J.D. Vance in Ohio. Uh, have all declined to commit uh, accepting the results in 2022. So did Tudor Dixon, the Republican nominee for governor of Michigan, Jeff Deal, uh, GOP primary for governor in Massachusetts. So this is almost like they're all um, exchanging talking points and, and just accepting the same uh, or, or pushing the same narrative that they're not going to accept the results if they lose. Is that uh, resonating to, with voters? Uh, accept them if they win. Is that resonating with vote? Is that resonating with voters? You know, I think it is actually. I mean, it's we, we've become so polarized with Republicans and conservatives watching Fox News or or OAN and other things, uh, and Democrats uh, watching MSNBC that I think people are 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 hearing what they want to hear. And I think that you know, for for far right conservatives that are Trump supporters in particular. You know, they're just so uh, suspicious of the election uh, for, for reasons that have not been proven true or validated uh, that they're just buying into this. And that's very scary for democracy. I think we're going to have some really turbulent um, elections and post-election results and, and people contesting them. Steve, I just want you to broaden out the context for us a little bit, because not only do we have people running for these offices who are saying they're not sure they'll accept the, re- the results, or they will reject them if they lose. We also have a number of election deniers who are running for running in races where they will have at least some degree of control over how elections are run in their states. What does this mean for our elections moving forward? Well, it means that we're in quicksand in understanding the outcome of of a number of elections. And, you know, Nevada is one of these races where someone's running for secretary of state who is uh, an overt election denier uh, regarding President Trump's election. I think Josh framed it right. But I think at the same time, We've just come through a couple of elections in which we knew uh, there was Russian interfer- interference uh, in the elections. We saw um, a very 
um, strange sort of social contract between um, large social media corporations and elections. And there's there's uncertainty around all of the stuff that is surrounding people's sacred right to vote, how to vote. And of course, we had COVID, which, which you know, really threw some speed bumps in the ability uh, of various Americans to vote, to, to, to get to election polls, and, and saw this broaden. We don't have a consensus right now uh, in this nation or within states, because it really is state-controlled issue, on what are the appropriate ways and manners by which Americans can vote. We're going to have to go through this and work through it. But I think at the bottom line, um, yeah, we have some cases where people have committed themselves to an outcome uh, in, a, in, a, in a race in, in what normally in normal times would be highly inappropriate and would you know essentially disqualify that candidate from seeking that position. But right now, because of the doubt that exists out in American civil society about our election, the solvency of elections, then conspiracies are fueled and you've got candidates that are running on this doubt. And that's a real problem. And it's going to take us a while to work through it. What does this mean for the GOP in particular, though, Steve? Because even within the party, you have Republican secretaries of state who are running elections and saying our elections are are safe, they're secure, and they're bumping up against members of their own party or candidates of their own party who are sending a very different message to voters. It's, it's a real problem because, in, you know, I was with Paul Ryan recently. He said on the record, Donald Trump lost Wisconsin. He lost more than – there were more than 60,000 votes, ballots cast where – uh, the Republicans were were elected in almost all categories except Donald Trump. They explicitly did not vote for Donald Trump. So those Republicans that won in Wisconsin, despite the you know the complaints that well there, there was fraud or you know some problem in those ballots, et cetera, et cetera, it actually delegitimates at some level. It makes insolvent the notion that Republicans could win on their own, or or that Republicans can make a choice between a Donald Trump uh, and other candidates. So they have a problem because Republicans are surging right now in many places in the polls. And as they cast doubt on the election process, but they're going to come up, uh, I think, with a lot of surprising wins, how do they manage that in the future? You know, they won through a system that they've been, you know, throwing doubt about. But do they also risk losing, Josh, a a segment of their voting population that says, I'm worried about democracy. I may agree on this list of issues, but I can't get behind a candidate who continues to espouse these conspiracies. I, you know, I do think that that's ultimately going to be the case. I mean, we're going to talk about this later in the hour, but, you know, there's polls now showing that people are very concerned, Democrats and Republicans, about the future of democracy and the solvency, as Steve put it, of democracy. So, you know, I do think that it's a problem. And, and you know, as, as Steve also noted, you know, you have down-ballot candidates who are winning on the same ballot that Trump lost. Um, how do you basically say that the whole ticket you know, is delegitimized. I mean, if, if other people are winning, uh, at some point, you know, people have to realize that you can't just say that all the all the races that you lost have been rigged, and all the ones that you won, including in the same, you know, where voters are casting the same ballots, um, that those are fair and 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 have not been rigged. So, I mean, it is kind of a a quandary, I think, and I think the Republican Party has not been trying to to really hit this head on. I think they're just trying to muddle through, get through the midterms, uh, win as many seats as they can, and go from there. And that's a problem for democracy. Well, we saw two eagerly awaited debates this week. Georgia Governor Republican Brian Kemp squared off against Democratic rival Stacey Abrams. The current failures we have seen in the state are not only damning, they are disqualifying. And over the next few years, we have an opportunity to change the trajectory of the state. My desire is to continue to help them fight through 40-year high inflation 
and high gas prices and other things that our Georgia families are facing right now, quite honestly, because of bad policies in Washington, D.C. And in Florida, Republican Senator Marco Rubio went toe-to-toe with Democratic Representative Val Demings. One of the first things I did when I got back to Washington is I sponsored a bipartisan red flag law styled after Florida, not the crazy one they just passed, a real red flag law that would allow the police department to go before a judge and remove your guns if they can prove that you are a danger. The one they passed allows some co-worker that doesn't like you to go to some liberal judge and take away your Second Amendment rights. Senator, you used the, the Pulse nightclub shooting as your inspiration to run again for the Senate in 2016. Parkland, uh, Pulse is in my district. And yet, you've done nothing. I'm curious to hear your big takeaways, Nancy, from these matchups. Well, one of the things that I thought was very interesting from the matchups is both uh, all of the candidates were really trying to paint the other one as the most extreme, um, you know, from the party. So we saw, we heard Val Dennings just there trying to say that, you know, Marco Rubio had, had done nothing on gun control despite the horrific tragedy that was Pulse Nightclub. Um, we saw Tim Ryan, for instance, in Ohio try to paint J.D. Vance as, um, you know, an anti-Semitic and a racist during the debate. He talked about how J.D. Vance was supportive of this white supremacist great replacement theory. He implied that that really bothered J.D. Vance. And so it was really, um, you know, both all the candidates and all these different uh, primaries really trying to paint their opponents as sort of the most extreme, either the most liberal, the most conservative, you know, aligned with white supremacists. And that seems to be the strategy um, moving forward. It's interesting because they've just been, you know, very heated debates. And, you know, the upcoming debate this week to watch is in Tuesday, the one between uh, Dr. Oz and John Fetterman. Um, And that's one that I think people in the White House and Democrats, uh, you know, who have a lot of hopes pinned on that Senate seat will be watching closely. Steve, when you look at the major issues that are coming up in these debates, how well do you think those issues resonate with the electorate? Well, I think they're getting into the big things that I see on the radar screen of Americans. I mean, I think abortion and the Dobbs decision has been part of these debates. I think crime and how to approach it has been has been in these debates. Inflation and economic anxiety, gas prices, scrambling to pay the bills. So on the whole, in contrast to many years, I have found the debates that you've just raised rather good at least getting a square off between candidates over, you know, these issues about choice um, and and safety and, you know, how to pay the bills. So I've not been disappointed in the debates that I've seen. Josh, your thoughts? You know, I think that there's been a, a coarsening of the public discourse in some of these debates. And one of the things that was really noteworthy to me was in the debate between Herschel Walker um, and Raphael Warnock in, in Georgia, you know, uh, or just the campaign in general. I mean, Warnock has basically been trying to take the high road the whole time. Uh, but recently, you know, due to the polling, I mean, he's losing uh, to a candidate who has basically, you know, been sort of facing a barrage of accusations about illegitimate children or children that he hasn't supported paying for abortions and so forth. But Warnock, who's built his campaign around uh, his work in the Senate and a record of bipartisanship, is now basically uh, shifting towards a more open confrontation with Walker. Um, he used the debate um, that Walker did not attend uh, to hammer the football star, former football star, over his history of domestic violence, etc. So I think that, you know, in order to succeed in these debates and, and in the campaign in the, in the last few weeks, I think some candidates are, are, are thinking that they have to sort of take the low road just to sort of uh, stay 
stay, um, you know, in the race. And, and that, again, is a problem. So um, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, but when you look at debates over the last few elections, is it really surprising? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that. I, I can think of some recent debates where there were some low roads taken by some of the candidates. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, like, look at the Trump, uh, the debates over the in the in 2016, 2020. Um, so I guess that's the case. I mean, you you can also say that, like, at least in the in the Florida debate, that there was a lot of talk about the issues. I mean, they talked about everything from abortion to whether Putin's going to launch a nuke, uh, the economy, of course. Um, so you know, I I think there are a lot of issues here: um, um, abortion, guns, the economy, nuclear war. They are being discussed. I mean, in Florida, they were discussed in Georgia, in Ohio. Of course, but you also have like the case in Ohio where JD Vance basically um, lashed out at people who quote shift spouses like they change their underwear, and I'm not sure what he was going with for that with that, but um, you know, except trying to appeal to the to the Trump um, base, but you know, you just get kind of these um, these weird remarks that um, uh, you know that that just seem out of line with trying to engage in policy discussions. But yeah, I think you're right. It's 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 nothing really especially new. Well, I want to stick with voting for just a bit. In August, Governor DeSantis announced the state had arrested 20 people for voter fraud. And this week, body camera footage of the arrests showed the voters and the police who arrested them were confused, to say the least. Apparently, uh, apparently, I, I guess you have a warrant? For what? I'm not it's sure. for voter stuff, man. For voters. It's, it's uh, what it uh, is. It, I think the agents with FDLE talked to you last week. About some voter fraud, voter stuff, when you weren't supposed to be voting, maybe. Steve, what exactly were these people arrested for, and why do they seem so surprised? Well, they were voted. Be, they were arrested uh, in a in a campaign that was launched by Governor DeSantis to crack down on voter fraud, uh, voters that were um, allegedly. Uh, not allowed to vote because they they had had felonies, had, had served prison time, etc. Um, and what we saw is incredible disarray on these body cameras, lots of confusion, cases in which these voters who were arrested, I mean, they were put in handcuffs and taken away, had been told and guided to vote by Florida uh, officials. And so this is one of these, you know, just bizarre cases where there was performative theater, uh, in my view, of of Governor DeSantis showing that there was voter fraud in the voter elections. They were going to crack down, spend a lot of money to it. But when you get down to the real human beings that are brought in, the, the stories are disconcerting because you see people who are clearly confused and on the spot uh, were able to say we were guided to do this by a Florida election official or by a Florida uh, government official of some sort. So that that is, you know, the the controversy now is, you know, what did we do to regular people? And what messages is this is this sending? It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or to just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's jump back to our discussion of some of the week's biggest headlines. Okay, let's get back into the midterms. On Wednesday, President Biden made a big commitment at an event held by the Democratic National Committee in Washington. Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. Whether Biden can keep his promise depends on whether Democrats hang on to Congress next month. Steve, what would codifying Roe do? 
Well, it would take this out of the dispute, um, you know, the back and forth within the Supreme Court. I should also just add very quickly that I'm editor-at-large, and my friend Ben Smith is still very much alive as editor-in-chief of Semaphore. <laughs> but that, that aside, um, if it codify Roe v. Wade, then, then Congress has taken action, um, and, and this takes it out of the Supreme Court deciding and making the decision on, on whether, you know, when does life start and what are the boundaries of women's rights to choose uh, about, you know, their, their physical choices and, and, and their body. It, it, make, it codifies Roe Ro v. Wade and, and all of Roe v. Wade. There. This almost happened before. What, what was interesting in, in codifying Roe v. Wade is that there was an attempt within the legislative branches of government to go a bit further than Roe v. So we're going to have to see where this goes. But um, I think if, if there, there would probably be a lot of support in some, some cases of codifying Roe v. Wade because it gets it back to what the status quo was. But my colleagues may feel differently. I mean, Nancy, I'd love to hear from you on this and also clarify for us how much congressional power the Democrats would need for Biden to get this passed. Well, the um, Biden has said, um, you know, repeatedly this week that he would need 53 votes in the Senate. And so, um, you know, that is that is a tall order. Um, they would have to have more seats than they have now. Now they have 50 and, and the vice president casts the um, the vote. So that means they would have to not only hold their power, but pick up additional seats. And so, um, you know, the president is using this as sort of an incentive to try to excite voters ahead of the midterms. He did this in 2020 with the Georgia Senate races, if you remember. He said, you know, if we hold the Senate, if we win the Senate and we win these two Georgia seats, we will send out stimulus checks. And that was you know, seen as a motivator for people in Georgia and something that the White House followed through on. And I think that there's a similar tactic here where he's trying to, you know, encourage and excite voters, particularly female voters who, as I said earlier, have turned away from the Democratic Party um, in the last two years and try to um, excite them ahead of this race where turnout is going to be very, very key. When you say female voters who have turned away from the Democratic Party, can you pull on that thread a little bit more and explain exactly what demographic you're talking about? Sure. It's really suburban women um, and independent women who have pulled away from the Democratic Party. And what, uh, you know, the Democrats have tried to do with a lot of their talk of the Dobbs decision and abortion is really excite female voters. And, And what's interesting is when the Dobbs decision first came out over the summer, we saw a huge wave of female voters registering to vote. Democrats were feeling much better about the midterms than they were uh, before. But there's been an interesting sea change over the last few months as sort of the initial, um, you know, anger on the left towards that decision. I wouldn't say it has waned, but there have been sort of other concerns that have come to the fore. We've seen in polling that really the dominant issue heading into these last, you know, 19 or 18 days before the midterms is the economy and inflation and things like abortion, crime, and healthcare, they're still important to voters, but overwhelmingly the economy and inflation is what voters uh, are, are really most concerned about right now. And that works against the Democrats because um, they had wanted to make this election much more about you know, abortion and choice and not voting for Trump Republicans and things like that. But Steve, when we talk about women voters moving away from Democrats, we're really talking primarily about white women because black women have been a pretty stable source of support for the Dems, right? Well, they have been a stable source of depend uh, uh, for Dems. But one of the interesting groups out there, where are the Hispanic voters going? Mm-hmm. Where are Hispanic women going? And and right now, and you know, if you listen to Unidos US and and their uh, polling, it shows that in fact. 
um, a large majority of Hispanic women actually support women's right uh, to choose that have dif- uh, differences with the Dobbs decision. But there are still many Hispanics that have um, views on immigration and border issues um, that that they have been you know, bit by bit by bit, slipping a little bit more towards the, the Republican Party. And so you've got that where the Hispanics go is going to be very important in, the, in these upcoming races as well. So President Biden has talked about his post-midterm plans, assuming the Democrats win. Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says if the GOP triumphs, there's one thing they won't do, and that's impeach Biden. On Wednesday, McCarthy told Punchbowl News, quote, I think the country doesn't like impeachment used for political purposes at all, end quote. A handful of GOP lawmakers have introduced more than a dozen impeachment resolutions targeting Biden, though none have gained traction. Josh, why is it significant that McCarthy came out and said this? Well, you know, McCarthy has been uh, trying to walk this tightrope for a long time. And I think, you know, um, by shutting down talk of using impeachment as a political tool against Biden, he's trying to, uh, you know, he's he's trying to keep his party in line, but he's also trying to, um, uh, I mean, he, he's basically trying to have it both ways, I think. And I think there's a lot of people that are concerned that McCarthy has not always uh, done what he said he's going to do. So I think that there's a lot of people, certainly on the Democratic side, that believe that they will try to impeach Biden if the GOP does win the House. He's just saying that so that they can get past the election and not have it be a distraction. Uh, Whether that turns out to be the case, you know, it's hard to tell. But, um, you know, I do think that there are a lot of Republicans uh, who have been very vocal about this, saying that they are going to try to go for impeachment for Biden. They're going to try to undo um, all of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, investigations about the January 6th committee. They're going to basically try to put people, uh, if not on trial, sanction them or, um, you know, take other measures against Democrats that have tried to get to the bottom of January 6th and other uh, and other problems. So, you know, again, w- whether McCarthy is sincere in this or not, I guess we'll have to just wait and see. Well, before we move off the midterms, a sobering update from a recent poll. Only 9% of Americans believe democracy is working extremely or very well. That's according to a new poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. It was released on Wednesday. Steve, before we get into the findings of the poll, just first give us a bit of a gut check about how we should read poll numbers. Well, when you go a little bit further, um, they show that 37% of Americans um, think it's reasonably well. So I think, you know, the 9% number of, of it's going great and it's just hunky-dory, everything is good, is is disconcerting that there is, you know, this is it, this this sort of level of doubt. But, you know, the majority of Americans today do not think democracy is delivering. Um, and this has been, you know, a number that has been growing, but it's been significant for a long time. We have such inequality of opportunity, of assets, of direction in this country. We have so many problems and divisions that are not being addressed by our political system that people look at it and say, how is this delivering for me? And so I think there's something we should pay attention to in these numbers. And I think we're very late to it, that what we're seeing is a manifestation of decades of growing doubt that our system was was not just benefiting a few, uh, but was designed to work for all of us. Josh, midterms are roughly two weeks away. What do you think the implications are of of this idea that most Americans have such little faith in democracy? You know, it's hard to it's hard to tell, Jen. I mean, you know, according to this survey, thirty seven percent of U.S. adults said that democracy functioned somewhat well. Fifty two percent said they believe the country's democracy was working not at all or not too well. Um, and one thing that's worth noting is Republicans were more likely than Democrats to say U- U.S. democracy is not working well. So that does play into. 
you know, some of the concerns about whether people are going to accept the results of the election, whether they're going to contest them, um, and more fundamental democratic institutions and whether they're working or not. So, I mean, I think it's it's a serious, uh, you know, wake-up call for people that people are that concerned about the state of democracy in the country. Um, uh, I, I went back and looked, actually, and um, the same poll in February 2021 said that 16% of Americans, uh, which is basically, you know, 7% more, uh, did believe that democracy is working extremely well or very well. So the question is, why are people thinking that it's not working as well now? Um, And, you know, Biden being the uh, incumbent in office, a lot of it's going to hinge on what people think about his job, how he's been doing and and whether or not to reelect or uh, Democrats that are that are running, especially in swing states. We know there's a lot of a lot of motivation feeding this belief that democracy isn't isn't working. But Nancy, we were talking about elections earlier in the hour about candidates being willing to say they would accept the election results. And when I think about the last election cycle, in the midst of a pandemic, it was a safe, secure, rather non-chaotic election, even though the rhetoric around the election was chaotic, the election itself went incredibly well. So I just, I wonder why that messaging isn't getting traction with so many people that things actually worked. Well, it's not really something that Democrats are talking about, uh, the the fact that they're not using that as an example. Um, President Biden does talk extensively about threats to democracy when you're with him on the campaign trail. Um, He does talk a lot about, you know, how democracy is fragile, how, you know, this is the U.S. is, um, you know, people around the world are looking to the U.S. And it's very important that the U.S. have a stable government and a democracy and world leaders notice it. But they don't talk about how they don't point to 2020 as an example of where we went through a once in a century pandemic, but still managed to have a presidential election that, you know, went off mostly without a hitch. Everything was fine. We, you know, had a a victor. President Biden was inaugurated even despite January 6th. It's not something that they talk about. Republicans have really built so much of their messaging for the midterms. and, And President Trump continues to build so much of his rhetoric around the idea, the false idea that there's a problem with elections, uh, there's a problem with mail-in ballots. And I think it's something that Democrats haven't um, successfully figured out how to counter yet. Let's turn to economic news and a quick mention. Next Monday, the U.S. Mint will start shipping coins featuring actress Anna May Wong. She was the first Asian American to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and she'll now be the first Asian American to appear on U.S. Currency. We spent a lot of time this week talking about inflation, and it's hitting everyone, including the feds. This week, the IRS announced they would make some big adjustments to the tax returns we file in 2024. One update is a roughly 7% increase in the standard deduction. That's what's used by people who don't itemize their taxes. Steve, how will this affect taxpayers? Well, it's going to give them more breathing room for their deductions because it will take more of the income they are in in absolute dollars and and remove that from the you know the tax person's grab and and so this will give them you know some some relief from high inflation. It's been interesting that not only this move is coming out, but we've also seen for those receiving Social Security a commitment to increase Social Security payouts. That's different than the tax question, but 8.7%. So what you're seeing on both sides are major shifts 
in the and and relief, frankly, for Americans that are fa- uh, facing a lot um, higher prices at the at the pump and food and you know basic cost of living. So people will be able to keep more of what they earn. Well, the other change is to tax income bracket. So they're also getting a roughly seven percent boost, and this means some taxpayers could put in a lower, uh, be in a lower tax bracket in the twenty twenty three tax year. Josh, how big of a deal is that? You know, I think it is it is significant. I mean, the the marginal rates uh, stay the same. I mean, they remain unchanged from twenty twenty two, but I do think that it's going to give people more money um, in their. You know, they're going to be able to defer uh, you know tax payments or or actually not pay tax payments on this. Um, I think that one of the things to look at is you know when Trump. Uh, was in office, he engineered one of the biggest tax uh, changes um, in recent history. And um, a lot of it um, basically favored uh, corporations and very wealthy individuals. And I think that the these changes go a little bit towards uh, rectifying some of those, at least in the minds of, of the lower and middle income, uh, you know, taxpayers. But, um, you know, I think that there's still a long way to go in terms of uh, addressing some of the concerns that people have, especially uh, when it comes to inflation and sort of kitchen table issues. How are they going to pay for things? So um, I think this will be, it remains to be seen like how, if this is the first of several steps or whether they're going to just leave it at this. Um, but I think that there's a lot of people out there that are very concerned about it and, and will probably look at this as something that's more incremental uh, than something that solves their problems. Well, connecting this back to the midterms, we got this tweet from GF who says, have GOP candidates said what they're going to do to lower inflation? I've heard them complain about Democrats, but no solutions from them. Nancy, briefly, what have we heard so far? The the Republicans have not put out a plan or a ton of policy plans all across the board about what they'll do about the economy if they do win power. Um, They have said that they uh, want to do some spending cuts and may try to uh, use the raising the debt ceiling as a moment to make those spending cuts. But we haven't seen sort of a full policy proposal about how they would handle inflation. That is a good point from um, this listener. Well, we've got just about 30 seconds here. I'd love to hear just in a sentence or two from each of you what you'll be watching in the next couple of weeks as we head into the election. Steve? Everything I'm watching right now is what's affecting the voter as, as he or she looks at the midterms. That's that's right now. We've got a couple of weeks to go. And uh, whether it's economic anxiety, uh, views on abortion, inflation or other matters, crime, you know, I want to know um, where that's going. Nancy, what about for you? I think the same as Steve. I'm curious to see if the overarching concern for voters ends up being the economy and inflation, um, as it seems like it's going to be now. Josh, you get the last word here. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, disinformation and propaganda in the midterms by China. Some security experts told me that that's a growing concern, uh, that they're trying to do sort of the same thing that Russia did the last time around and influence the election um, and um, try to try to get voters to to do what they what they want, what they think is in their best geopolitical interests. So I'm watching that one and Lindsey Graham and whether what he's going to say when he has to testify about his role in the January 6th and potentially overturning the election. That's Josh Meyer, the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Nancy Cook is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. And Steve Clemens is editor at large at Semaphore, a global news outlet. Thanks to you all. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll be back to discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the globe in just a moment. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White. Let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. This is how it started. 
I know that we will deliver, we will deliver, and we will deliver. And we, and we, and we will deliver a great victory for the Conservative Party in 2024. Thank you. Thank you. And 45 days later, this is how it all ended. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. And there was a whole lot of chaos in between. Lots to get through today. And joining us is Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Emily Tampkin is senior editor, U.S. at The New Statesman, a British political and cultural magazine. Her new book is out this week. It's called Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Emily, welcome back. Thank you so much. Well, let's start in the UK, and it has been a wild week. So we're turning to our old friend and a regular voice on the roundup over the years, Robert Moore. Robert is the Washington correspondent for ITV News and joins us now for a few moments. Robert, thanks for being here. Jen, it's always great to be on your show. Okay. Why on earth is the UK looking for a new prime minister again? Well, what a good question, and many books are going to be written on this. Uh, yeah, the Conservative Party, which brands itself as, you know, the... Uh, as the party of stability, of fiscal discipline, of a sort of having and possessing solid middle class values, finds itself being compared really to a to a circus because uh, it's churning through uh, prime ministers, chancellors, foreign secretaries. Um, and as Der Spiegel, the German magazine, puts it today, it's become the laughing stock of Europe. And the reason is, I think, simply put, is that the Conservative Party has become essentially ungovernable. It's uh, riven by factions. Uh, and Liz Truss came to power not only as a poor communicator, but then tried to push through a budget that had vast uh, unfunded tax cuts. Uh, that sent the markets into a meltdown. It also sort of opened up the rupture within our own governing party. And therefore, uh, just a few weeks uh, after taking power, she is humiliated uh, and leaving Downing Street imminently. Well, before Liz Truss resigned, as you alluded to, the anger among some in her own party was palpable. This is Conservative MP Charles Walker speaking to the BBC on Wednesday. I've had enough of talentless people putting their tick in the right box, not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest. And I know I speak for hundreds of backbenchers who right now are worrying for their constituents all the time, but now worrying about their own personal circumstances because there is nothing as X as an ex-MP. And a lot of my colleagues are wondering, as many of their constituents are wondering, how they're going to pay their mortgages if this all comes to an end soon. Robert, the ruling Conservative Party has been in power for about 12 years. Why has it imploded? Well, I mean, the point, uh, just to pick up on that uh, powerful uh, interview there with a Conservative MP, it, it captures the, the sort of cold fury, uh, not only uh, in the party, but more importantly, much more importantly, in, in the country. Because, you know, it's not like this sort of 
comedy in the House of Commons is going on at a time of you know economic stability. It's going on at a time when Britain is facing huge economic challenges. My network, ITV News, has been reporting on heartbreaking stories across the country where working people are just unable to afford uh, you know essential foods. They're having to choose between heating and eating. There's a cost of living crisis that is of a an extraordinary scale in parts of the UK now. So you know the idea that the British electorate is looking at the Conservative Party right now, you know, in open warfare and trying to choose a third prime minister in just a few weeks. You can imagine the uh, the view of politics in Britain right now. So, it, you know, even though it's tempting to see it as a circus or to use other sort of colourful metaphors, it really is a tragedy that's unfolding and a national humiliation. Well, this has got a lot of attention outside of the UK. How has President Biden responded to this, Nancy? Well, he came out and said um, sort of officially that this was not going to hurt the U.S.-U.K. relationship, that the partnership continued, that um, Prime Minister Truss was a trusted partner in um, supporting Ukraine. But then in a, st- in a campaign stop, he conceded that her economic plan, uh, a £45 billion um, tax cut that was unfunded, that spurred um, a lot of the financial ter- and economic turmoil that we've been hearing about, he described it as a mistake, which is um, arguably a very um, harsh assessment of, albeit accurate, assessment of what happened. And so what we saw is that the historical relationship continues, but those very um, pronounced differences about policy um, uh, came to the fore as as the president was making his assessment of what had happened um, in the United Kingdom. And we should talk about who we can expect to replace Liz Truss. The man she replaced, Boris Johnson, has been vacationing in the Caribbean. Robert, how credible are the reports that he might run again and make what some people are calling the ultimate comeback? Well, it seemed incredible when it first was sort of uh, suggested. But actually, uh, over the last 24 hours, his candidacy has gained real traction uh, on the right of the Conservative Party. And, you know, there are complicated rules for this, uh, uh, Jen. But essentially, over the next sort of 72 hours, uh, somebody who wants to stand to be leader of the Conservative Party and then Prime Minister must hit a threshold of 100 MPs. And then if more than one person uh, achieves that threshold, then the vote goes to Conservative Party activists, about 200,000 of those. And actually, Boris Johnson is gaining large uh, support amongst the Conservative Party MPs over the last uh, few hours. Uh, And Rishi Sunak is likely to do well. There's a third candidate who's just declared a few minutes ago, Penny Mordaunt, who might present herself as a sort of unity candidate. So um, it is, you know, all to play for, as they say, uh, in British sports. And uh, Boris Johnson, to the surprise of many, could be on the cusp of an astonishing comeback. And and that itself brings all sorts of uh, difficulties because he also faces a House of Commons investigation into whether he lied to Parliament. So there's no sense that the... uh that this uh, circus act that's going on in the, in the Conservative Party is anywhere near to an end. Peak madness may yet be ahead of us. I, just watching this from the outside, Robert, 
I'm trying to understand how Boris Johnson has gained any traction at all. He lost the trust of most of his party. What changed? Well, I think, simply put, there is an argument in the Conservative Party about legitimacy. You know, who has the right to suddenly walk into Downing Street? And the Boris Johnson supporters say, well, actually, he does in a strange and rather perverse way because he has the mandate from the British people because, of course, he won a huge majority in the 2019 general election. So his supporters uh, would argue, look, if we're talking about a mandate, the only politician within the Conservative Party who has any kind of popular mandate is actually Boris Johnson. Now, others would say that's absurd because you're right. I mean, just a few weeks ago, Conservative Party uh, support for him crumbled. You know, cabinet members resigned. He was thrown out of office, uh, you know, also in a state of humiliation after his parties in Downing Street that so offended the country. And yet there is this view that despite it all, A, he wins elections. And secondly, he has some kind of popular mandate because of that victory in the 2019 general election. But in in terms of political years in the UK, how far away is 2019? Because it feels like a lifetime right now. Doesn't it just? And, and, you know, the truth is we're still potentially two years away from a general election. You know, the Labour Party is furiously asking for a general election now, saying, look, the Conservative Party is a broken institution. Of course, there must be a general election. But, you know, as many people have pointed out, you know, the Tories are never going to vote for an election in this environment when they are so far behind in the polls. It would be like, you know, Turkey's voting for Christmas or in political terms, it would be like voting for extinction because there is, as many people have talked about, uh, a fury towards Conservative Party that is not only visible in the polls, but if you just talk to you know, working Britons at the moment, I mean, the state of fury as they deal with, you know, rising costs and je- mortgages that are being jeopardized and, and, and their sense of economic dislocation, the fury is really something to behold. Emily, what potential ripple effects do you see from this chaos globally? I have to say- yeah, I have to say, I, I joked, I am the US person for a British magazine and so joked that I was looking forward to writing my third piece on the Biden and like insert Tory prime minister and what it means for the US-UK relationship. Um, it's not really a joke, it's it's happening. Um, look, I think that, I think that as Nancy said, um, the US-UK relationship will continue, it's robust, but obviously, like obviously it is not uh, good for robust relationships for robust partnerships, not just with the U.S., but, you know, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said sort of passive aggressively, we look forward to the U.K. returning to stability. Um, There is a lot that needs to be done right now, not just domestically, as Robert was saying, but around the world. And it's very difficult to do that when you don't know, I mean, you don't know who the foreign minister is, who the prime minister is, really what their agenda is, um, particularly with, as we're going to discuss, Russia's war going on in Ukraine. Robert, in the weeks to come, what are you watching? Well, we're watching to see whether the Conservative Party can put forward a a serious candidate. I mean, how does Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, how does he fare in this contest? You know, this is going to be very rapid. You know, we're going to have a final uh, candidate uh, or two by Monday. If if more than one gets over this threshold, we'll have a prime minister certainly by by next Friday, a week in a week's time. So it's going to be very fast. And we're going to see whether they can restore not just economic uh, credibility, but political stability as well.
That's Robert Moore. He's the Washington correspondent for ITV News. Robert, great to have you back on 1A. Always a pleasure. Before we move on, a quick news update. A federal judge has sentenced Steve Bannon to four months in prison for disobeying a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Bannon, a longtime advisor to former President Donald Trump, was found guilty of two counts of contempt of Congress this summer. Judge Carl Nichols rejected an array of arguments offered by Bannon's defense team, including that he was protected from being compelled to testify by executive privilege. Steve Bannon will remain free pending his appeal. And you can listen for the latest on that story on your public radio station. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky estimates that around one-third of his country's power stations have been destroyed by missiles and drone attacks in the past two weeks. And Russian airstrikes have triggered blackouts in more than 1,000 towns and villages across the country. On Wednesday, Kyiv's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, said power and water supplies have been partially restored to the capital. President Zelensky praised those who had intercepted attacking drones, saying, quote, every destroyed drone is a life saved. Nancy, this is, this is complicated. Talk to us about these strikes and their impact. Sure. So let me begin by saying that the way this is a change in tactic that we've seen in recent weeks by Russia with the use of Iranian supply drones. And the idea is to basically swarm the air defense systems in place so that some missiles, some drones get in and strike um, infrastructure across the country. The Russians haven't said it, but the implication is that by um, getting rid of power, getting making it hard for uh, Ukrainians to get water, that you can essentially um, freeze um, the Ukrainians into submission as um, the country enters winter, um, such that they're not able to fight as effectively, that they start to leave, and that it creates a space for Russia to then make some advances that it has so far struggled um, to do uh, throughout this war. And so we have seen a real bombardment on the electricity grid, on the power stations. Um, and I think it really speaks to an effort by um, Russia to play some kind of long game. What we've also seen is a, a re- the U.S. Um, and its allied partners trying to get ahead of this, providing Ukrainian fighters winter weather gear. We've heard Ukrainians um, sort of restate again their resolve to keep fighting despite this, to make um, adjustments, um, limit power uh, usage around the country. And so this is all part of a tactic, uh, sort of a wear down, um, break the, an attempt to break the will of the Ukrainian people by taking away um, infrastructure. Well, you mentioned the source of these drones. Earlier this week, Clarissa Ward reporting for CNN in Ukraine was given access accessed by the Ukrainian military to one of the captured drones. And here's what she found. We know that it is Iranian plane. The first thing we watched uh, the exhibitions and some years ago, Iranian avia companies showed this. This exact model. This, this plane. And the second thing, uh, why we visited it is Iranian plane, yes, we have one only one writing, uh, writing by the hand. Can you show me? Uh, yes. So that's Farsi. I think, yes, yes, you're right. Emily, put this into some more context for us. Why is Iran selling Russia these drones? I think we need to remember that Iran and Russia, you know, have a partnership. Um, and I think see each other as partners in combating the, the a West that would stop their regional ambitions. Um, obviously, if Russia is billing this as a fight against the West and a fight against the United States, um, 
that's <laughs> that's that's an argument that's perhaps to which Iran is perhaps sympathetic. Um, this does complicate things, though. You know, I've, we there's been much attention on, for example, Israel and its position and how it's sort of been wary to provide certain forms of support to Ukraine. Does the fact that Iran is getting involved on the side of Russia, does that change things at all for Israel? And meanwhile, one has to wonder with the ongoing but stalled um, negotiations over the United States rejoining the Iran nuclear deal, does this factor into it? Does this make it more politically difficult for both sides to come to some sort of agreement? So Iran's involvement in this changes not just the war in Ukraine, but really, I mean, really relations all around the world. We got this question from Doug, who writes, if there is indeed a factory building drones for use against Ukraine, why haven't we destroyed it? Nancy? Well, well, let's assume that. That would involve potentially a strike inside Iran. And of course, there are all the second and third order effects of that. And that's, again, assuming that there's one location. It's hard to believe that there are. I should say, you know, these drones, they're not... huge. They're not, um, don't think of it as like an airplane. These, these are things that are relatively small and, and can be hidden. And so it's hard to, th- to think of it as sort of one location where they could be built. What we have seen the U.S. propose is um, putting more sanctions on Iran. I think the challenge ultimately is not whether you strike or not, but how you have impact. Because so far, we haven't seen sanctions effectively stop um, Russia, and it's and it's um, war in that it hasn't led to a withdrawal, and there's no indication that they will stop um, Iran from um, continuing to support Russia. And at the same time, the thing that the Ukrainians need, the air defense systems, can't get there fast enough. There are not enough of them. The, the, the cupboards are running bare in some of the European countries in terms of providing those systems, which are very advanced. And so... I, I think Doug's underlying uh, question gets at the lack of options to stop this. Um, But I'm not sure that the the way he proposes it would be the way to do it. That said, the things that we're seeing the international community do so far also are presenting challenges. So he has the right idea that there should be an effort to stop it, but also how challenging it is to stop these alliances, to stop these weapons going into Ukraine. Well, Emily, how are these airstrikes impacting decisions being made in Europe and and the U.S. about what extra equipment is now needed by Ukraine? I mean, as Nancy said, people aren't uh, people are not able to get Ukraine the material that they need quickly enough. And it's not it's not really for lack of trying. I mean, the United States has provided billions in aid, military and and humanitarian to Ukraine. Um, we know that the U.S. has been urging its European partners, you know, hold fast. We know that it's going to be a cold winter, but we have to we have to continue to support Ukraine. Um, Europe has also come out and said that these are war crimes, which, of course, it, it, it I mean, it, I find it hard to imagine justifying these as not war crimes, given that they're striking civilian infrastructure. Um, look, it's very clear that Russia is trying to create a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine as the country heads into winter. Um, and I think the United States and Europe, because of the way this war has unfolded, are sort of at a point where they need to try to support uh, or, or have clearly indicated that they're going to try to continue to support Ukraine, both the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people to get through, you know, to get through that crisis to weather the winter. We've heard President Zelensky call for more support from the U.S. and Europe. Hey, Nancy, how how complicated is this becoming as We've heard from the U.S. we don't want to put boots on the ground. We don't want to have direct military intervention in Ukraine. But as Russia ramps up these attacks, does it make it a more complex question? 
it does in that what they need is air defense capability, things that can sort of shoot down um, the missiles and the and the drones coming in. And every country wants more more of those for their own security, including the United States. Um, the sort of the most sophisticated we have is the Patriot system. There's not enough uh, for for U.S. defense, and so um, if you want to produce more, in addition to being costly, it takes a lot of time in a war that is moving very quickly. We've heard from a lot of European nations that they've exhausted what they can give away as is. Other nations are, are reluctant to um, give away heavy weapons, not out of a lack of support for Ukraine, but about, uh, out of fears of um, instigating, um, triggering um, tensions with Russia. So you have stockpile shortages that complicate it. You have concerns amongst um, allied nations who are afraid to um, escalate um, their involvement and, and the potential second and third order effects of it. And you have time. One of the things we have to remember is that what Russia is doing in these attacks is trying to buy time to regroup and reset precisely when um, Ukraine needs the support potentially to um, finish um, some of their assaults. They've made tremendous gains in places like Kharkiv and Kherson. Um, and right now is when they need arguably the most support. And yet uh, the weapons and the systems they need can't come fast enough for the threats that they're mm -hmm. facing. While this issue about aid to Ukraine came up in the U.S. this week, speaking to CNBC, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said that should Republicans take back control of the House after the midterms, there would be, quote, no blank check for Ukraine. His comments come as a growing number of Republicans, particularly those aligned with Donald Trump, question the need for federal funding abroad at a time of inflation at home. And that caused something of a stir. It came up again when former Vice President Mike Pence appeared on Fox News this week. Host John Roberts asked Mike Pence if he agreed with Kevin McCarthy. I'm always in favor of accountability and understanding where the dollars are going, but I think it's absolutely essential. I've stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Vladimir Putin. I've looked him right in the eye. The only thing he understands, John, is power and standing with the people of Ukraine who are courageously fighting for their freedom. That's what the arsenal of democracy and that's what America needs to do. Nancy, it's, it's an interesting door for Kevin McCarthy to open, but what about his substantive point about oversight? Well, I think he's reflecting um, parts of the Republican Party. We've seen in um, polls um, by re uh, polling Republicans that there um, is increased concern about the amount of um, weapons and supplies um, that the Ukrainians are getting and the lack of transparency, I think, for some about where those weapons are going and how um, the U.S. will continue funding them and for how long. There was a Pew Research poll, for example, from September that found that 32% of Republicans believe the U.S. is providing Ukraine too much um, aid. At the same time, I think there's a feeling that the um, the Russians are uh, in a weaker position than they were just a few weeks ago. And I think that's contributing to this feeling that the U.S. doesn't need to do as much um, that that same poll found that um, that America's concern about Russia's victory dropped from 55 to 38 percent. You have a midterm election coming up. A lot of the um, this um, Mr. McCarthy's base believes that the U.S. needs to be investing um, more in uh, the U.S. If you the the most right side of the party, the America First side, says that the the U.S. should spend its its tax dollars towards its own 
um, infrastructure, its own um, security. And so I think what you're hearing is an effort to try to put some bounds on, I think, what has been seen as an open-ended promise to support Ukrainians and that that's what he's trying to address ahead of uh, the midterms and to a population that um, hasn't seen a lot of um, accountability for what those weapons are doing. They've seen a lot of results, but they haven't seen, I think, um, for some, they feel a clear explanation of how long this funding goes on um, and, and at what cost to U.S. stockpiles, to U.S. security. Let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Melissa Chan. She's a foreign affairs journalist based in Berlin. Her work has appeared in Foreign Policy, Vice, and Al Jazeera, among others. Melissa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So we were just hearing there from Nancy that Republicans here in the U.S. are sounding some alarms about perhaps reducing aid to Ukraine if they win in the midterm elections, if they take control of the House. What questions does that raise for Europe, Melissa? Um, I think it's, it's it, of course, it echoes uh, America first and its isolationist um, sort of approach. And from the perspective of Europe, I think this is a reminder for Europe, a lesson, as I sit here in Berlin, not to rely on, uh, you know, once again, they're facing the question they had a few years ago about uh, reliance on the United States in so many ways, right? In this case, uh, reliance perhaps on U.S. security or a reliance on the U.S. taking the lead on Ukraine when um, really, if you look at a map, uh, why should the United States, right? That's what some of these people in the United States are saying. And the Europeans are once again being reminded again. It, it's kind of incredible for me um, being in Europe, seeing how quickly uh, people got used to, once again, this Biden administration and forgetting, maybe because it was just more convenient for them to forget, um, the Trump administration and how unmoored everyone felt. We remember, of course, what Trump said about uh, uh, NATO. And um, now with the midterms, I think the Europeans are once again realizing that in the two years, they could be in a situation very similar to where they once were. Um, and having to really deal with the Russia issue without a reliable partner in North America. Um, From my China perspective, um, because I do look at things such as disinformation, um, I can't help but think, based on what the GOP House leader said, that if I was in the room uh, in China or Russia dealing with disinformation and online influence campaigns um, in terms of meddling with elections, that I guess I know where to put my hands on the scales in this instance. Um, there's one party that seems to have made clear that there are bounds in terms of their willingness to help Ukraine. And of course, it is ironic that it's the party that has often accused Democrats of being dovish, of not being uh, anti-communist enough. I mean, I understand, of course, Russia is no longer Soviet, but, you know, we're talking about communist-aligned states and the rhetoric um, of uh, being anti-China or anti-communist that we see so often from the GOP uh, then coming up against uh this feeling that they can't Mm. or don't want to support so much financially. Well, Russian and Ukrainian troops appear to be readying for a major battle over a strategic city in the south. Kherson is part of a region illegally annexed by Vladimir Putin. Both fighting and evacuations are underway. And the new commander of Putin's army in Ukraine appears to be preparing the Russian public for the surrender of Kherson. And here's the spin provided by General Sarovkin. 
Under these conditions, the priority is preserving the life and health of peaceful citizens. Therefore, the Russian army will provide the already announced safe transportation to the population under the relocation program being prepared by the Russian government. And add to that this offer from Russian's deputy prime minister. Everyone who wants to move from Kherson will receive a housing certificate according to which they will be able to choose housing in any region of Russia. Emily, very briefly, how surprised were you to hear these comments from General Sorovkin? I would say two things. The first is that to the people on the ground, these are not evacuations, these are deportations. And they are at risk as peaceful citizens because Russia invaded their country. The second thing is... um, To me, this really drives home that you can annex, you can announce the territory is yours now. You still have to win it. (laughs) I can declare myself queen of Berlin, but I'm I'm not. And I think that's the reality that even with with drone strikes, even with these announcements, even with these these spins, these provocations, um, the reality is that this war continues to not go well militarily for Russia. Let's move on to some news out of Iran. Protests sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini while in police custody are entering their fifth week. Iranian competitive rock climber Elnaz Rakabi competed in South Korea without the required headscarf on. And when she returned to Tehran this week, she was greeted by a cheering crowd. There was concern over El Naz's safety after she competed without her hijab. She's back home in Iran and is said her headscarf came off accidentally while climbing. But Nancy, what do we know about her whereabouts right now? Well, for a couple days... It was unclear where she was um, in South Korea. She then um, returned uh, to the airport and was seen there. But she appeared quite nervous as she was answering questions. And she was saying everything happened according to plan in terms of her return. There was no problem. Um, our understanding is that um, she has returned home and the, um, the head of the IOC in Iran has said that there will be no further repercussions. I don't think now is the time when many are worried. It's when the spotlight starts to dim and the tension turns away from her that I think some are worried about whether she could face further repercussions for what she has described as an accident. Um, because I think w- whether you believe it was an accident or not, this this protest, which has been going on for six weeks, has really been fueled by images, by moments where um, people, particularly women, have have been defiant. There, an image of a woman burning her hijab, a woman or a child in some cases refusing to sing the national anthem. Some have paid with their lives, and I, and so the idea that Alnez uh, represented um, the movement overseas um, at, on such a big platform has has clearly angered um, the Iranian regime, how they deal with it. I think if we're looking for um, a real understanding, we must check back in a few weeks from now when some will have forgotten the story, but maybe the Iranians have not. Well, Emily, protests against Iran's morality police continue. At least 244 people have been killed during the protests. That's according to the nonprofit human rights activists in Iran. Where is this, where is this going from here? I actually don't. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Um, but what I do know is that these protests will never not have happened. So, you know, Iran can use the Iranian regime. The, they can use force. They can silence dissent. They historically have been very good at it. Um, but 
these women, these girls, they will never not have been on those streets protesting. And I think that will inform what, what happens next, too. Well, let's get back to Russia now, where WNBA star Brittany Griner is still serving a nine-year prison sentence. That's after being detained for cannabis possession. And now NBA stars are urging President Biden to act. I appreciate us being able to share this floor together, all of us as brothers. But the big picture that's going on in the world is free our sister, Brittany Griner. Please, please, Fotis, do your job. Everybody do your job. Please bring our sister home. That was Brooklyn Nets point guard Kyrie Irving speaking to the crowd at a game this week. Melissa, NBA star Steph Curry also spoke up for Griner's release this week. In a statement through her attorneys, Griner said, quote, Thank you, everyone, for fighting so hard to get me home. All the support and love are definitely helping me, end quote. What effect will this public support have on Biden's urgency to get Griner home, Melissa? Oh, this has been such a fascinating and tragic story. Um, As someone who has watched a lot of authoritarian states um, hold U.S. citizens or foreign citizens, um, what I see in this story is um, two groups of people with different uh, backgrounds sort of almost not quite understanding each other. You have, for example, uh, those in the sports industry and sports journalists Right. And also those who cover authoritarian states and who are foreign correspondents. And um, repeatedly, I see these appeals to President Biden and I I don't think they should stop. Um, But on the other hand, anyone who has looked at uh, essentially hostage diplomacy understand that uh, the options are extremely limited here. I mean, a part of the issue, of course, is that Russia has leverage. There is a war going on. At what point, um, how do the Americans make an assessment of um, freeing Griner at the expense of what? Uh, at the expense of uh, what kind of trade-off? And I think that's the kind of thing that, uh, from a foreign correspondent perspective, you understand. And uh, when I talk to my friends who work in sports journalism, it's much harder for them to wrap their minds around. Nancy, anything to add? I have to say um, something that jumped out to me was how much we learned about her suffering this week. There were um, her lawyers came out. This was her 32nd birthday this week. And she's only allowed outside once a day. She shares a cell with two others. She showers twice a week. She hasn't spoken to her wife or only spoken to her wife twice since February. She's afraid of being forgotten in, in, in Russia. And and uh, and she's reading um, a Russian classic, uh, Demons, where God's existence is reaffirmed through suffering. I mean, it was really striking to me all this that she's enduring for having two cartridges. And even by Russian standards, nine years um, is a very harsh sentence and unprecedented. And so to, to Emily's point, she is part of something bigger, far bigger than anything she's done. But this week, I think we're reminded of the person who's at the center of this. Mm-hmm. And, and Emily, just I would love to hear you chime in on the fact that we're talking about someone who's not just a sports star. She's a black woman. She's a black gay woman. How does that complicate this? I think in the beginning, when those close to her were saying, hey, actually, we don't want to raise this profile, it was, it was in part because of that, because she is in a country that, that's quite, I mean, just to put it frankly, can be quite racist and quite homophobic. Um, and she's a, a, a sports celebrity. So I think, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm 32. I, I, cannot, I cannot imagine enduring what she's enduring. And I completely understand why her colleagues um, want to, uh, are speaking out for her. And I understand that that makes her feel like she's not forgotten. On the other hand, um, 
because she is a hostage, is it necessarily helpful in the long term in getting and ensuring her her release that that it's known that she's you know this this unique um, outstanding person uh, who so many want to want returned to the United States. Well, let's move now to news out of China, where President Xi Jinping is start, set to start a historic third term. Xi has been in power for a decade, making him one of the most powerful leaders in China in modern history. Melissa, what does a third term mean for China and for the rest of the world? Well, a third term is being interpreted as a life term. He's essentially paved his uh, you know, path to being leader for life. And And everyone, as you can well imagine, are reading the tea leaves of some of his statements uh, over the past few days. Uh, So far, uh, the best assessment is more of the same and a little bit worse, um, both for the domestic Chinese citizens and how heavily they're surveilled and the level of propaganda they get, but also for the rest of the world. There seemed to be a little bit more rhetoric about... um, this feeling that China is surrounded by enemies, uh, that it sort of is China against the world that I find slightly troubling. And we don't know how she's going to think once he feels more secure in his new power next year. And that's the big question, of course, surrounding Taiwan. Well, on Sunday, she made a speech at the Communist Party Congress. That's a week-long meeting for the thousands of delegates all around China. And she outlined his vision for China and its foreign policy involving the U.S. For his own country's future, security was a reoccurring theme. We'll build on and expand the gains of national defense and military reform, improve the structure and composition of the armed forces, and refine the framework of military policies and institutions. We will implement major projects to develop defense-related science and technology, weaponry and equipment and build a strong system for training new types of military personnel. According to account by Reuters, she said the word security or safety 89 times on Sunday. Nancy, what do you think she's third term means for the future of U.S.-China relations? Well, he let me begin by saying that he never in his speech said the United States. Um, he used um, terms that were seen to uh, suggest the United States, including stormy seas, uh, was one that we heard. Um, particularly as it relates to the U.S. Um, naval presence um, and, and uh, efforts to defend um, Taiwan. I think what we heard more than anything was that his message was that a peaceful world is undermined by the United States and that China seeks to um, create its to become a superpower by by 2049, and that includes um, a, a superpower in terms of military strength. We've seen them really expand their naval presence, and I think what and and in other um, military and defense realms. And I think what we heard in this speech um, was a commitment to that 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 part of the superpower status is one that includes a strong national security presence. I would note that also that that's an area that he has been aggressive on, and it's a topic that I think um, resonates um, better than his economic plan. He was um, much 
less assertive in terms of um, addressing some of the economic issues, um, including um, property, the property market slump that, the, that China has seen right now. So I think part of it was his own vision in terms of where China is in 2014, but also uh, an area that he sees relative strength to compared to um, where things stand economically and his handling of um, the economic slump we've seen. Melissa, briefly, two years ago, President Xi made a pledge to double China's economy by 2035. But at the Communist Party Congress on Sunday, he laid out new economic goals. Briefly, what did he say? I mean, kind of good good luck. Uh, youth unemployment is at nearly 20 percent. Uh, we've already talked about the real estate and banking problems. There's a demographic time bomb in China. Its own industrial output and economic growth is facing headwinds. And, you know, he wants to do this all with more state-led economy uh, as opposed to uh, sort of a private-led uh, economy. So I think it's all talk. And I think what's really t- telling um, is not just what he said, but actually what what didn't happen, which is that everyone was expecting economic data to be released and they were delayed um, this week. And I think that's an indicator of the reality of what's actually happening in China in terms of the economic headwinds. It's an economy that's connected to the rest of the world and the rest of the world is struggling right now, whether it's in the United States or in Europe. And China is facing the same problems, even if we may know less about it because of the media censorship. Well, let's spend the rest of our time on Haiti. The United Nations has been grappling with how to respond to events there. And this week, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, called for an armed intervention at the request of Prime Minister Ariel Henry. But voices against foreign forces are getting louder on the streets. No to the Canadians, no to the Americans. You're monsters. You don't have solutions. You're chaos. You're behind the gangsterization of crime. You are giving arms to our brothers and those who are in underprivileged neighborhoods. Armed gangs have blocked fuel. More than half the country is facing acute hunger. There have been weeks of protests over high food prices and calls for the resignation of the prime minister. Emily, is Haiti heading toward collapse? I mean, I, there, I think what's really important to remember here is that part of the problem is that foreign countries, including the United States, um, have have created a history of foreign intervention in Haiti, um, wherein Haitians really have no reason to trust that an intervention will go well for them. Further, the United Nations is also not a trusted party. Uh, we'll remember a story from several years ago in which UN peacekeepers were accused of sexual harassment in, in Haiti. Um, so it's clearly in crisis. Um, and I don't Unfortunately, I don't know that there is uh, that the international community has has earned the trust um, that it would take to be part of rebuilding what's what's happening there now. Nancy, all this is happening against the backdrop of a humanitarian crisis. Cholera is spreading, and according to the World Food Program, more than 4.7 million people are facing acute hunger. We we heard there from Emily that in the past intervention has not has not gone well. What is the path forward? That is the question. You've noticed that the UN has delayed and um, uh, voting on uh, whether to sanction 
some of these gang leaders, whether to send in a rapid response force that would be made up of potentially um, forces from the Bahamas. And I think part of it is because there's so much complexity around addressing what's happening in Haiti. On, on one hand, foreign intervention has historically um, gone very badly in, in Haiti. And at the same time, we're talking about a state where the majority of the capital is being run by gangs, where there's no parliament, where there's no prospect of having elections under these circumstances. And so is the very thing that someone argued contributed to the instability we've seen um, historically through Haiti now the solution? And if so, what's going to be different this time? And why should Haitians have faith? The, the president has asked for... Um, foreign intervention, but the people haven't. And I think the challenge is the mandate on which uh, the president is in office is arguably more from outside the country than from inside the country. And so who decides the solution? I think to your question, it's so hard to answer because it's not clear who who speaks for the people and who can represent and protect their interests. And can that come from an outside force? We'll leave the news roundup there. Thanks to our guests, Nancy Youssef from The Wall Street Journal, foreign correspondent Melissa Chan, and Emily Tampkin from The New Statesman. Callan Quigley is our sound designer and engineer today, sitting in for Mike Kidd. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.